good evening, Christ Church. I trust that being back in the house of God is, is a blessing and a privilege for you. Uh, this evening I'll be preaching from the book of 1 Thessalonians, uh, the first chapter, um, specifically the first 10 verses. I'll go ahead and read the text in its entirety, and then I will pray for us as we begin. <coughs> first Thessalonians chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you all, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. With the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray for the Lord to bless the reading and preaching of his word. O Lord, we thank you that you have brought us into your house, for it is in your house that we come before your word and we come before your very presence, O Lord. I pray that you would fill us with great wisdom by your Holy Spirit, O Lord. Encourage our hearts with this message, O Lord, that we would indeed be a people of great faith, not because our faith is great, not because we are great, but because you, O Lord, are indeed great. Lord, we do pray all of this in Christ's very precious name. Amen. Well, one of the things that I recall doing as a child, as I'm sure some of you might have examples of, is playing very, very silly games. There was one particular game that I played with my sister, and and almost saying it out loud is going to sound very strange to you, perhaps, although I did ask my wife if she played this game too, and she said she did. And basically, in this game, you begin to repeat a word, doesn't matter which word, and you say that word again and again and again and again and again and again. And after saying that word so many times, you begin to realize that that word sounds very strange. It sort of loses all sort of meaning for you, and it sounds just like a word coming out of your mouth, a sound that means nothing at all. And so I encourage all the children who perhaps have not played that game uh, in the car ride home tonight is a very good time to test out that linguistic game. But I do mention this for a reason. Because I think largely that something like that has happened more broadly in our church and in the culture around us with the word faith. 
It is a word that is often used, as we know, both here in the church, but also in the world. But it's not a word that is used often with a lot of clarity. In a sense, we have emptied that word of so much of its biblical meaning. You often hear phrases like, you need to have faith, or you need to lean on your faith, or you just need to be a person of faith, and other such sentences. And yet, how often do we point to the object of that faith? My point is this, that in its overuse, this word has, in a sense, lost much of its richness. It's lost its biblical meaning, its fully orbed meaning. And so my hope tonight, as we look to the book of 1 Thessalonians, is that God would remind us how valuable faith is, how important faith is, how wonderful it is. And that particularly he would show us in the example of the Thessalonians what it looks like to be a people defined by faith, a people of faith. And so in this sermon, I have four questions about a people of faith, four questions that I will ask and that the text will answer. Uh, Due to time limitations, I will only be able to get to two of those questions tonight. If I have the opportunity to preach in the future, I will get to the other two questions. But for tonight, I will only ask and answer two of these questions about a people of faith. My first question is this. What defines a people of faith? What defines them according to our text and according to God's word? And the first thing I want us to notice is that they are defined by a closeness to God. Look with me at how Paul opens up his letter in verse 1. Look who it's written from. It's written from Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, the three founders of the church in Thessalonica. But look also to who the church, or excuse me, the letter was written to. We're told that it was written to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if I were to give you one very short, one-sentence Bible reading lesson, it would be this, that prepositions matter. Prepositions matter a whole lot, especially when we're reading in the letters of Paul. And notice what preposition he uses when he sends this letter out. It is the church of Thessalonica in God. They are the church in Christ. And this preposition is vital because it denotes for Paul and for the church a closeness, a relationship, a union that that church has with God himself. So we could say it simply like this. The people of faith are those that are, first of all, marked by a profound experience of God himself. They're marked by a profound experience. They have come, in a sense, to know God and to relate to him. Jesus teaches this all throughout his Gospels. He says this in John 14, speaking of the the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Spirit will be in you, Christ tells us. And in verses 2 through 3, we see more on this theme of closeness with God. Look with me at verse 2. Paul writes, We give thanks to God 
always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father. So what does Paul say that he is doing for the Thessalonian church, even as he is so far away from them? He says that he is giving thanks to God, that he's constantly mentioning the Thessalonians in his prayers to God, that he is even remembering them, and how is he doing it? Before God himself. In other words, his whole ministry is before God. It is God-word. It is directed to God himself. And this shows us about how Paul ministers to the people of God, that he always wants to take the sheep back to God himself. In fact, that's how biblical shepherds are to operate, according to the scriptures, that they are to direct the sheep to God himself. They are not to draw the focus to themselves or to what they do, but in everything they are drawing the people of God back to God himself and reminding the sheep of God that the most important relationship that they have is not with, an, with another person, but it's with God. It's with God Almighty. And Paul can only do this because of the relationship that the Thessalonians have with God. They are a people of faith, and they know God. And their faith makes their relationship with God something very special. That the people of faith live before God, in a sense. They live before his very face, and they live their lives before him. And this is the greatest privilege that they have. Well, that's the first thing that defines the people of God. They have a closeness with him. But that's not all we are given in this text. We are also given three defining qualities that teach us what the people of faith are like. And those qualities are faith, hope, and love. Notice what Paul says in verse 3, that he's remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we find these three vital graces laid out, defining qualities laid out for us, faith, hope, and love. And notice what Paul does with them, that he describes them as inward graces, and yet for each one of them, they have an outward manifestation, that they're shown on the outside. For example, what is faith? Well, faith is an inward trust in God. It is a belief in the gospel of God. What has God said to you? And believing that is faith. I very much appreciate the way that John Calvin defines faith. It's a definition that I've kept with me for many years now, and perhaps you can as well. This is what he says is the definition of faith. It's a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence toward us, founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that's a lot, but there's something in there that I want us to take note of. Faith is real and firm knowledge. Faith is real 
and firm knowledge. And what I mean by that is faith is not simply a blind leaping into the darkness. Faith is not something done in utter and complete darkness and ignorance. No, rather, faith is knowledge given to us by God himself and implanted to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And that's what makes it so sure. The fact that it is given to us by God himself. And as we know, if God has said it, what could be more sure? So faith is inwardly knowing and believing the truth of the gospel, but it's manifested outwardly, is it not? What does Paul say about it? What is he commending them for? Their work of faith, particularly works of the law or works of righteousness, works that are pleasing to God. This is the outflow of their faith that because they believe the truth God has given to them, they work for God's glory, works that reveal a renewed and changed inner man. And this same dynamic is true for hope and for love. Love describes the heart. It describes the affections of a person. And yet, what does love manifest itself in always? In outward works of labors, as Paul reminds us here. A, la- uh, a labor of love. That outward works of selflessness. Outward works of, of looking to others as above yourself. And once again, the same dynamic is true for hope. What is hope? It is an inward yearning for the fulfillment of God's salvation. We know that the salvation is fully coming, and we know that by faith. And so what do we do as the people of God? We eagerly yearn for it. We hope for it. We wait patiently for it. But once again, This inward reality has an outward manifestation. He talks here of steadfastness of hope. An outward steadfastness that the people of faith are to have because of their hope. What does this outward steadfastness even mean? I think it means several things. I think it means that you are focused on Christ's glory. I think it means being not so easily distracted by the world being steadfast in the midst of a distracting world, being steadfast in the midst of temptation around us, that that temptation does not pull at us as greatly as it once did, and ultimately not as easily pulled out of the race of following Christ. Why? Because your hope makes you look forward. It makes you steadfast, following after Christ alone. I love the way Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 3. I think he's describing here the steadfastness of hope when he says, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. That's what faith looks like on the outside. And these are the qualities that we are given. These are the qualities that we are told define a people of faith. Faith, hope, and love. Are you defined by these things? Are you defined 
by what defines the people of faith. That is to say, have you come to know God experientially? Do you daily live before his face and in a way that desires to honor him? Are you marked by these qualities that we've just discussed? Perhaps even in growing fashion, these qualities of faith and hope and love. I don't want to give the impression tonight that the people of faith are perfect or sinless. The truth couldn't be farther from that at all. But what are the people of faith? They are gripped by God, and they desire to live for his glory. That is the answer to our first question, what defines the people of faith? My second question tonight is, how do you become a people of faith? Or I might ask it this way, how did you become a people of faith? And the first thing that we want to notice here in our text is that the people of faith are chosen by God. Look what he says in verse 4. He says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. And so we need to take a moment and consider where it is that our salvation begins. And ultimately, it begins with God. It begins before the foundation of this world itself. And most precisely, it begins in the eternal will of God. And we are being told here that salvation is first of God's free and loving choice. Now, as Reformed, we know this truth. And we believe this with hearty amens. And yet, for so many, this idea is difficult or often outright rejected. I assure you that tonight I will not be giving a, a complete defense of the doctrine of election. Uh, that is something you are looking for, I commend our pastor's sermons to you on the book of Romans, uh, fully covering this doctrine of election. But I do want to focus on one common objection that I believe the text addresses and answers about God's sovereign choice. The objection would be something like this, that if salvation is entirely based on God's choice, then I have no way of knowing if God has chosen me. In other words, it's an assurance of salvation question. I won't be able to have any assurance that God has chosen me because, after all, I can't know the mind of God, which is true. How does the text address this objection? Look at what Paul says after he brings up God's electing choice of the Thessalonians. He says, we know that you were chosen. We know that you were chosen. You think to yourself, how do you know that, Paul? How did you come to this conclusion? How does he know that? Well, go on, look at what he says. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. In other words, he's saying their faith itself is evidence and proof of God's electing choice. The evidence is that the word came with power, that it came with conviction. And I think this shows us something. That lurking behind the objection I gave to you just a moment ago is this idea that faith is natural. 
that faith is something natural. In other words, the assumption that faith is a thing that I produce, that it is something that I bring to the table, that I contribute. It is my work. And if I bring it to the table, then it's really not a very remarkable thing, is it? But this is far from the truth, is it not? Faith is anything but natural. In the scriptures, we are told again and again that faith is a supernatural reality. It is something that cannot come from us, but only something that can come to us from God himself. And here in this text, we are told that it is something that can only be produced if the word and the spirit comes. For when the word and the spirit come, what does Paul say? They are fully convicting. They're fully convincing. Why is this? Why do you need the word and the spirit together? Why can't you make it with just one of them? Why can you just have faith with just one and not both? Well, let me explain very briefly. The word brings us the content of the gospel. It tells me about who Jesus is, about his life and his death and his resurrection. It tells me about God's plan of salvation and his will and all that he is to accomplish. It is God's word that tells me what I am supposed to believe in the first place. But that alone can't produce faith, can it? Because there's a problem. The sinful humans don't love God or his truth. That in the end, what do we prefer? The truth or lies? Light or darkness? We always go with lies and the darkness that mankind in his sin recoils from the truth of God's word, and so we are in desperate need of something else, the Spirit of God. We need the Spirit of God, too, because it's the Spirit who brings newness of life. It's the Spirit of God who brings regeneration to God's chosen people. It is the Spirit of God who makes us new creatures, who makes us born again from above. And I can put it simply like this. Paul is teaching us that if there is no regeneration of the Spirit, then there is no faith. If the Spirit has not worked in you, faith is not possible. Paul says in Romans 8-9 that anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Or consider what he says in 1 Corinthians 12-3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Spirit. So how is faith evidence of God's choice, as we've been saying? Because if God didn't choose you, if God didn't give you his word providentially, if God didn't fill you with his Spirit and transform you, you would never have faith to begin with. Faith begins with God's choice. But there's a second issue that Paul brings up here. He doesn't just speak of the divine, sovereign choice of God. He also mentions another side to this. He brings up the human instruments, himself and other preachers that God used to make this people of faith there in Thessalonica. He moves from election to himself. He moves from the sphere of divine sovereignty to personal action. Look at what he says in verses 5 through 6. Almost immediately after, he says, You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. 
and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. In other words, Paul is bringing up the fact that he not only preached the gospel, but he lived it out among them. That he set the example of faith in their midst. In his own words, I love the way he puts it, he imitated Jesus before them. And what did they do? They imitated Paul. So why is Paul reminding them of this all of a sudden? It's so that they can remember how it is that they came to faith. They can remember what it is that God has done. That they had indeed been chosen by God, regenerated by God's spirit, given God's word, but also that God had sent them human teachers to show them the gospel, to point them to Jesus, to be witnesses for the truth, to sway them and persuade them and guide them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This reminds us of a beautiful biblical truth, that God is sovereign, but he also uses means. That the same scriptures that tell us that salvation belongs to the Lord, and yes, it does, and all praise to God because it does. The same scriptures also tell us, as we read just today, how are they to believe in, whom, in him of whom they have never heard, and how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? That's how God worked among the Thessalonian church. That's how God works among you as well. That he elects, he regenerates, he gives his word, and he gives faith, and he gives witnesses and preachers and teachers and those who will spread the gospel and pass down the seed of faith, those who pointed you to Jesus in the first place. As we think about faith and a people of faith tonight, I want us to ask this question. If we have faith, and I trust that for many of us we do, do we think of that faith highly? Because we are reminded tonight that faith is no small thing. It's not natural. It's the supernatural outworking of a providential faith. Brothers and sisters, we cannot take our faith lightly. We must know in truth that it is a gift given to you by Almighty God. I'd like to close tonight simply by reading Paul's magnificent words in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Brothers and sisters, let's worship God. He has given us the gift of faith. Let us pray.